Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is, uh, it is wonderful to be uh, back. It, it definitely, there you go. I'm here two minutes and I'm wrecking the place. Sorry, Steve, that's your, that's your base mic there. Don't worry, we'll sort that out. Uh, it is wonderful to be uh, back. Definitely feels amongst friends. And so thank you so much for, uh, for those who have already had a, a warm welcome with it. It is, it is lovely to be back amongst, uh, amongst friends and family. Um, this morning, can I be right up front and say, uh, this morning I think is, it could be a challenging passage and message for some of us, many of us maybe. Uh, and so I'm going to put that right out at the front. And I want to say that with sensitivity because I realize that I'm going to share that and then I'm going to leave. And, and I don't want that at all to seem that I've just dropped a grenade and I've ran. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but I feel like amongst friends and, and who I feel are family, uh, I feel like this is a message that God would have us share this morning. Um, but if you, do, if you do want to follow up with me, then, then please just speak to Dave and he'll, he'll, sort, he'll sort all that out or else forward on some emails. Um, because today, as Alice has already mentioned, we're going to be thinking about the temptation of Jesus. And I wonder what you are most tempted by in life. Maybe if you think about that question, maybe you think of some everyday realities, chocolate for some, or, or, or another episode of that box set, uh, or pulling a sickie and having a duvet day, um, or, or maybe that just tells you too much about me. Uh, but, but maybe some of us actually struggle with temptations that go, that go somewhat unseen. Maybe it's Temptation to compare our lives with others, enviously scrolling through our social media feeds, wishing our lives were different. Um, but maybe some of us sense temptation in areas of our life that, that we know if we were to follow through on would have a much greater impact, devastating impact at times. Maybe it's, it's that relationship that's bordering on unhelpful, but there's something urging us to see where it goes. Maybe it's in, in a substance that in, in moderation is fairly harmless, yet it seems to have a, a power and a control over us that we can't quite understand or explain. Maybe it's as we fill out our tax return and you consider not declaring that thing, because that's not really important in the grand scheme, is it? See, we're, we're tempted in many ways, and temptation is not a new phenomenon, and, and it certainly isn't selective in who it affects. All of us face temptation of some description every single day. Some of us will struggle with deep temptations that, that we know could bring chaos. And others of us might feel like we have things fairly well under control, but we know that danger lurks if we were to ever let our standards slip. Temptation is all around us, and it affects all of us. And maybe some of us are, are facing some kind of temptation at the minute as we journey through Lent. Um, so stick your hand up if you have given something up for Lent. <laughs> Not many of us. Don't know what that says about us. Um, uh, and, and the reason that many Christians sacrifice something at this time of year is to help us focus our minds to prepare our hearts for Easter, and, which isn't that far away. And, and the reason that we celebrate Lent for around 40 days is to, to remind ourselves of the 40 days in the wilderness that Jesus spent before he launched his earthly ministry in all its fullness. And, and so we read about that account in Matthew 4, the first 11 verses of Matthew 4, and we're going to read that in a second. If you want to turn there now, that would be great. Um, but let me, let me just say one thing by, by way of introduction. Um, as we read it, I, I find it a remarkable passage of Scripture. Uh, not just because it shows the reality of Jesus' temptation. Uh, and let's not miss that. Jesus was tempted. 
But it also shows the incredible example he gave of how to navigate his way through that temptation without succumbing to it. And that, I think, is where we see the good news of Jesus, the good news of God's word, the reality that temptation and difficulty will come. But in Jesus' example, we see the great hope of how to navigate our way through that, how to deal with that temptation in a way that, that honors God, in a way that's helpful to others. So keep an ear out for those things as we read these first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4. Sorry, it's not going to appear on the screen, but please do just follow along on any version you have. I'm reading from the NIV, just in case that's different from the one in front of you. So Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the, holy, to, the, to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. And so we see here there's three very distinct encounters that Jesus has with Satan. But before we get to those three scenarios, I want to just mention something that we see repeated. And any time that you're reading through scripture and you see something repeated, have a think about why that could be. So we see Satan, the devil, asking Jesus the same question twice. In verse 3 and again in verse 6. And it's a question of Jesus' identity. Can you notice that again in verse 3? If you are the Son of God... And again in verse 6, if you are the Son of God. See, maybe this passes us by because we don't don't seem it, it doesn't seem that threatening. But I think it's helpful to realize that this questioning tactic is exactly the same that Satan has been using from the beginning of time right up to now. For those of you who are familiar with, with how the world started, God created this perfect creation in Genesis 1, but that creation was distorted and broken by the introduction of sin. And that sin was brought about by a question of Satan. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the snake, flick that on for me there, please. The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Now, we know from from the verses that preceded and the verses that follow that God was clear. God had said, you shall not eat from that tree. But the not-so-subtle tactic of the tempter here is to force us to question, to, to shake the very foundation of the truth that causes us, that would cause us to stay clear of temptation. And so we fast forward to Jesus in the wilderness, where only a few verses representing a few weeks earlier, we had the categoric truth in Matthew 3, verse 17, where God himself at Jesus' baptism said, this is my son. And then Satan comes alongside him, if you are the son of God. Now, thankfully, we know that Jesus came to overturn the effect of sin as it came in Genesis 3. And so he was able to resist the tempter's doubting questions. 
But the point that God is showing us through the word here is to warn us of the enemy's schemes. How he causes us to question the very foundations that God says are true. This is the way Satan tried to tempt Jesus. And it's an important lens to view the the rest of this scenario that we'll read in Matthew 4. But it's also an important lens when we face that temptation ourselves. Is it possible when temptation comes to ask us this question? Flick that on for me, please. What truth from God and his word is being questioned by this temptation? And in light of that, how am I going to respond? We'll come back to that question a couple of times as we go through the rest of our morning. But let's look at these specific temptations which Satan brings before Jesus. And I think I'm going to suggest that there are three ways in which Satan seeks to challenge Jesus in his satisfaction, in his security, and in his status. I've been a pastor less than two years, and I can come up with three S's. <laughs> no, I thought that was impressive. Um, so let's start by thinking about uh, Jesus' satisfaction. You see, we're told that Jesus had been in the wilderness. He had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. Sometimes the Bible is just wonderfully clear, isn't it? Fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, and he was hungry. And into that hunger, Jesus had that very tangible physical need. Satan enters with an offer. Tell these stones to become bread. It sounds simple, doesn't it? You've you've got a very straightforward need. You can easily meet that need, so, so just go for it. And perhaps you can relate to to that kind of temptation, a very real need that that you're being tempted to to meet. Sorry For for you, perhaps that's in terms of food or or drink or some other substance maybe, or even physical intimacy or possessions or or money. There's a need there. You've got ways and means to meet that need, so just go for it. It'll be fine. And the thing is that this is getting to what is at the heart of our satisfaction. What do we find satisfaction truly in? And I think that's essentially what what this temptation is showing. Satan is showing Jesus that that his physical hunger could be satisfied quickly, could be satisfied simply. Jesus has the power to do that. And many of us face similar and and challenging temptations. Physical satisfaction in some sort, in some form, that could be satisfied if we do something. But there's a question here because Jesus is hungry because he's been fasting. Fasting. There is also nothing wrong with food in and of itself. And so what's the problem here? It seems that Jesus has been fasting because he's preparing himself for God's ministry. So Jesus has been obediently following the Father's will. That has meant a discipline turning away from something. But that something was good. Turning away from food. There's nothing wrong with food in and of itself. But the fact is, in this moment, Jesus has, has a disciplined turning away from that in order to follow God more faithfully. I think this shows us that sometimes the things that we are tempted by are good God-given gifts. But the problem comes, the temptation comes when we're being tempted to, to explore those gifts in time and in circumstances that wouldn't be of God. And so it's more a question here of timing and circumstance than it is about the food itself. Jesus was being faithful in his fasting. And while he's being faithful, he's being tempted by this good gift of God, but it's not the right time, it's not the right circumstance. If I can give one other example where I think we see that principle at play. Uh, The desire for sexual fulfillment is one. So sex is a good God-given gift. It, It is something that should be celebrated. 
But God has also given the context where that gift should be used in the right way anyway, and that's between a man and a woman in marriage. Therefore, indulging in, in pornography, sex outside of marriage, sex with someone who isn't your spouse, those things misuse the gift that God has given because they're not being used at the time or in the circumstances that God would have designed. Remember our lens question here, it'll appear on the screen. What truth from God and his word is being tempted, is being questioned by this temptation? What truth from God and his word is being questioned? The truth is, food is a good gift, but God had ordained a time and a place for Jesus not to use that. The truth that's being questioned here is really whether God is enough. Do we trust that God is enough? That our true satisfaction, our, our whole satisfaction, our deep eternal satisfaction is found only in him. And not only that, do we trust that his timing and his circumstances are enough? Essentially for, for his design for how those gifts should be used are good and right and true. Do we believe that? And do our lives reflect that? See, we see Jesus' response in verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, in the midst of, of a focus on the temporary satisfaction that is offered by this loaf of bread, Jesus asserts that his complete satisfaction is found only in God and in his words. And so for us, in those moments when, when we're faced with temptation to find satisfaction in something that is temporary, something that is immediate maybe, something we know isn't the timing or the circumstance that God would want for us. If we find ourselves in that place, then we need to allow the Spirit to draw our attention back, to see the perspective of God's good word, to, to see and to somehow cling to the reality that if we say no now, it's because we're waiting for God's better yes later. Now the reality is, that choice can take great faith, incredible trust, because, because the better yes might seem so far off in the distance that we can't even comprehend it right now. The better yes that we know we are clinging to, we might not even see this side of eternity. Yet we trust that because God has created that good gift, he has given that timing and that circumstance for it, we're going to say no now. It takes incredible faith, incredible trust, but it takes a real assurance that our satisfaction is found in him and in him alone. Secondly, then, we're going to see uh, how Satan seeks to challenge Jesus' security. So we see Jesus in verses 5 to 7, take Jesus, or Satan takes Jesus to the highest point in the temple, and, and then using scripture questions how much Jesus trusts God. And, and Satan is asking Jesus where his security is by, by essentially taking a portion of scripture completely out of context, out of the whole picture of God's word, twisting it to assume something it's not designed to imply, and so essentially Satan is asking Jesus how much he trusts the truth of God's word and his promises. And through this temptation and through Jesus' response to it, we see again the importance of knowing God's word. Not, not just parts of it, not just what we hear on Sundays, but knowing the big picture of God's word. The big sweeping story of God. Because then we'll be able to fend off temptations like this. Temptations to, to compromise our beliefs when we're pressured by a culture around us. And also temptation to compromise our beliefs from false teaching within. And so we need to know the big picture of God's word. And when we do, when we get and grow in that knowledge of the bigger picture of God's word, 
we'll be assured that our security is found totally and completely in him, totally and completely on his word, on his son, on his victory over sin on our behalf, on his coming return, his promised return, his kingdom that will come in all its fullness. These are the things that matter more than anything else, and so we'll be able to live our lives with a different perspective, knowing that our security is is founded upon the unchanging, faithful God, not in the, the transient, temporal world around us. We read in 2 Timothy 3, and it'll appear here, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good word. Scripture is our final authority. Scripture is also our sure foundation for everything we believe and our sure guide for how we should live. And so we should know the big picture of God's good word lest it be twisted to mean something it's not supposed to. Thirdly, then, let's think about uh, the the temptation that comes towards Jesus' status. See, this final temptation takes Jesus uh, to the top of the mountain. Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor, and he promises that Jesus can be ruler over them all if Jesus bows down to worship Satan. And this temptation really gets to the heart of who Jesus is going to worship. Is he going to worship God? Is he going to worship Satan? You see, Satan is promising the whole world, literally the whole world, in response to worshiping him. And so in theory, Jesus is going to gain something by worshiping Satan. It sounds like an interesting offer, but I find Jesus' response here really important. You see, by Jesus saying, no, we are to worship the Lord your God and serve him only, Jesus is actually showing that worshipping anything or anyone other than God not only goes against his word, but it is also completely futile. Satan is offering the world, and Jesus says, absolutely not. But notice the status that is offered in both. Satan is offering authority, power, position to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, we're to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And in verse 10 here, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. And he's basically saying, all of this status, all of this stuff, all of the power and recognition that you could offer me, Satan, is nothing in comparison to being a servant of the one and true God. And I suppose we sometimes reel against that term, servant, the idea of serving the Lord. However, those negative associations we have with that term, I think it's because we have seen too many examples of people serving others, but the people that they're serving aren't worthy to be served. And so those folks misuse their position, they let us down, their promises turn out to be empty. But Jesus is showing that by taking on the the status, the, the attitude of a servant of God is the best place to be because of who God is. See, he is so ultimately good, he is so ultimately worthy that we should surrender ourselves to him and serve him. And and this sounds counterintuitive. That surely the idea of gaining success, gaining status, gaining some kind of position is bound to be better, but no, we take on the nature and the status of a servant. But the issue is who we're serving. And so Satan isn't going to get Jesus' worship because he is serving his father God. You see, all along, The God who made us, the God who is worthy to be worshipped, he offers that ultimate place of of satisfaction, of security, of status. And yes, that status is as a servant 
sounds completely uh, backward. But when we see him for who he really is, then surely there's no one else we should rather be serving. Our satisfaction, our security, and our status always and only find completely in God. Now, now there's so much more that we could learn here in this gospel account. Um, But later on in the New Testament, we're also shown some of the the glorious implications of Jesus' temptation. And so I'd like to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And just for our final few minutes together, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And the words will appear on the screen this time. Hebrews 4. So with those things ringing in our ears, how Jesus shows that our complete satisfaction is found only in God, our wonderful Oh, excuse me. Our wonderful security is found only in God. Our status as a servant of God is the right way to live. Then we read in verse four of cha- sorry, verse fourteen of Hebrews chapter four. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to have sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may find mercy and find grace, sorry, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, in in light of what we've seen and how Jesus was tempted and his response to them, these verses are key for us. And there's so much that we could say. I just want to pick out three sentences from these verses. Firstly, in in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. You see, the reality is that Jesus was tempted. Therefore, he understands our struggles. He understands our struggles against those temptations too. Indeed, later in the verse, we're told he was tempted in every way, just as we are. And so there's nothing that we battle against that Jesus is unable to feel sympathy for And this has wonderful ramifications because one of the things that it means is that we often struggle with temptations on our own, don't we? We we battle away often in secret. And surely one of the reasons for that is because, to be honest, we're ashamed of our temptations. We're, We're ashamed of the struggles we carry and the tragedy that might ensue if people were to discover our weaknesses. But listen to the truth of God's word. Jesus is able to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. Jesus is able to understand. Jesus is able to hear those things. And Jesus is able to help in those things. And so we should be encouraged to share them with him, to seek his help in those moments. And therefore, we, we don't need to hide under guilt or under shame that, that, that often prevents us from coming to God, the only God, the only one who can help. See, our high priest, Jesus, is able to feel sympathy in our weaknesses. And so perhaps some of us need to own those things before him this morning, name them before him, and seek his help and his strength to find a path through them. In the second half of verse 15, we say, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And one of the things these words show us is there's a difference between temptation and sin. If Jesus had been tempted in every way, yet he did not sin, then we need to appreciate that the presence of temptation is not the same as sin. Feeling temptation, struggling with temptation, battling temptation, whatever term you want to put on it, the temptation itself, the draw it has on us, is not necessarily sin. 
And this is important because many of us carry the guilt and the shame of the temptations that we feel. But if temptations are not the same as sin that we would be tempted to commit, then there should be no secrecy, there should be no shame, there should be openness, actually, there should be a willingness to, to ask for help and support one another with temptations to prevent sin. See, the problem is we, we feel like we have to hide our temptations, but it is often in that secrecy. It's often in that, that I think, false sense of shame that the temptation festers, that it grows, that it takes on what seems like an unstoppable power, and so we end up then finding ourselves falling into that temptation. Whereas perhaps if that temptation had been brought into the light earlier, we might have been able to receive the help and the support to make our way through it. Now we see this a little bit in James 1, where we see James talking about that God cannot be tempted by evil. He does not tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So we can see this stepping stones, but please hear me, I am not in any way trying to downplay the significance of our thoughts, our attitudes. So so I I am saying temptation is not the same as sin, but what I am not saying is we only sin when we act upon our temptations. Our desires, our thought life can lead us into sin. Remember Jesus in Matthew 5? He talks about, well, if you've looked at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you are angry with someone, you've murdered them in your heart. Our thoughts matter. And so the the drive here is, as Dave would rightly say, to guard our heart. Now, Now this perhaps sounds a bit aspirational, maybe even unrealistic and I understand that. I'm not, certainly not standing here as someone who's figured out how to avoid temptation and, and, and prevent sin at every and every, all and every turn. But I am standing here hopeful that Jesus shows it's possible to. And, and yes, as fully divine, we, we might assume that Jesus has greater control, greater power over the temptation he faced. But remember, the big picture of scripture shows that we have the same spirit Holy Spirit living within us to guide us into fullness and righteousness. And so Jesus' example is there to show us that it is possible to face temptation in a way that doesn't lead us to sin, where we guard our heart, where we follow him in obedience. And so we see these really important lessons from these words in Hebrews 4, that, that not only do we have a high priest who's able to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but he's also able to demonstrate that succumbing to those temptations is not inevitable. They can be defeated, they can be navigated in a way that doesn't lead us to sin. And finally, in, in case it feels like this has been a really heavy session, which I think it might have been, Let's finish with these glorious words. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you haven't listened, if you've zoned out since we started talking about temptation, please come back for this bit. Because all of us face temptations of many, many kinds, but this is the response that Jesus offers. Let us approach this throne of grace. We approach the throne. We are welcomed into his presence as his followers. We're not cast from his presence because of the reality of our temptations. We are welcomed into his presence, not turned away, and we come before a throne of grace, not the throne of judgment that we assume we will see. 
if we are covered by the blood of Jesus, if we are living, seeking to live our lives following him in obedience, then we approach this throne of grace. And therefore we can approach with confidence, not because we in ourselves have defeated sin. No, 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 Jesus has defeated sin. Jesus has made the throne room open for us. He has been that example for us. He has died in our place. He has forgiven our sin. He is coming again. He has cleansed us and made us holy. He's empowered us with his spirit. Therefore, we can come before his throne of grace with confidence. And what do we find when we come? We receive mercy. We find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, God wants to empower us in our struggle. Ultimately, free us from it, yes, but he provides the mercy and grace which helps us right now in our time of need. So just as we are with our struggles, with our failures, but we come before him, we lay those things before him, we find grace, we find mercy, we find strength to help so that we can get up and go again. Grace and mercy and help to keep on fighting the good fight, running the race, persevering in in all trials. You see, these biblical things, they're not easy, but we do them in his strength because he has given us grace and mercy, therefore helps us in our time of need. This, This is the good news of the gospel, that when we face temptation, not only do we have a high priest who is able to have sympathy, but we can approach him He can provide grace and mercy and help in our time of need. Now now please hear me, I'm, I'm not claiming because I don't believe the Bible claims that if you believe in Jesus then all your temptations disappear. I don't believe that. And at certain times and certain points following Jesus makes temptations worse. (laughs) But what I am claiming is that Jesus offers grace and mercy for those ready to admit that we've made a mess of things. He offers grace and mercy to, to empower us to pick ourselves up and go again to, in his strength for his glory. He offers grace and mercy so that we can invite a brother or sister in the faith to walk alongside us to help encourage us in our struggles. He offers grace and mercy to help in our time of need. This is who Jesus is. And so as we, we come towards a conclusion this morning, I do want to recognize that, that this may have been a, a difficult, uh, difficult session for some of us. Perhaps we've been confronted with, with the reality of, the, of a temptation that we've been wrestling with. And we haven't appreciated it really for what it is, but when we see that lens question of what, what truth from God and his word is being questioned here, and how are we going to respond? Perhaps some of us are, are in the midst of, of sinful damaging behavior, damaging attitudes. And we've been confronted with the need to repent, to lay those things down before our Father, to receive mercy, to find grace. And perhaps then we can all encourage one another as we, as we build one another up toward love and good deeds, that we strive this walk together, that we carry one, another burden, one another's burdens And we do that in a way that is real and is authentic. And yes, it's messy, but it's genuine. Or perhaps you've been reflecting on the life of someone close to you that you've watched fall into the trap of temptation. And so I pray this morning that that somehow you'll have been encouraged, equipped maybe, to draw alongside them, to engage with them in a way that points them back to Jesus. That shows them the grace that is there, the mercy that is there, the help that is there in their time of need. 
But however you've been struck this morning, my, my prayer is that by the grace and mercy of God, we'll know the joy of coming to him with our struggles. We'll know the joy of experiencing the freedom he offers to those who trust in him. We'll know the, the joy of sharing one another's burdens. We'll know the joy of setting better patterns in place. We'll know the joy of demonstrating grace and mercy to one another because that's what we've received. We'll know the joy of finding and being secure in our satisfaction in him, our security in him, our status as servants of him. Following Jesus, if you've, if you've listened for the last half hour, it might, might sound like an awful lot of hard work. Following Jesus is the life of joy. It is good news for those who hear because the things that we're tempted by do not lead to life. Jesus leads to life. And so I pray that we would know the joy as loved and cherished children of Father God bought with the price of his son's blood and therefore we'd live in the fullness that he's calling us to. And as we do that, people would look at our lives and see Jesus in us and be drawn to him themselves.